Section 17 of Social Life in England, 1750-1850 by F. J. Folks Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Lecture 6, Social Abuses as Exposed by Charles Dickens, Part 2. Imprisonment for debt was not abolished in England till 1869, and it is now only allowed by order of the court in the case of small debts which people can but will not pay. The horrors of the prisons which Howard and Elizabeth Fry, for all their gallant efforts, were powerless to remove, gave rise to a wave of public sentiment which carried their administration to an opposite extreme. Dickens saw this and exposed the folly of the movement in David Copperfield. You will doubtless remember that David's old schoolmaster, Mr. Creakle of Salem House, suddenly developed from a brutal pedagogue into an ardent philanthropist after having become a middlesex magistrate and devoted himself to the well-being of criminals copperfield as the rising author of the day dickens himself is invited to see a new model prison and takes his friend traddles with him it was an immense and solid building erected at a vast expense i could not help thinking as we approached the gate what an uproar would have been made in the country if any deluded man had proposed to spend one-half the money on the erection of an industrial school for the young or a house of refuge for the deserving old in the kitchen repasts were being prepared for the prisoners so delicate that none of our soldiers sailors labourers or workmen could hope ever to dine half so well there in a most comfortable cell our friends find uriah heep reading a hymn-book canting and complaining of the toughness of the beef and mr littimer steerforth's infamous valet gently hinting that the milk supplied might have been adulterated to illustrate this i turn to the old numbers of punch of the day a study of which comic paper though it be is one of the best illustrations of the current life and thought of every period since it appeared in eighteen thirty nine there one finds innumerable jokes and pictures of convicts enjoying every sort of luxury obsequiously waited on by the warders prison reform had to be irrational before it could become sane for as david copperfield says perhaps it is a good thing to have an unsound hobby ridden hard for it's the sooner ridden to death. Next we come to an abuse on which I must speak with much diffidence, for no one but a trained lawyer could properly discuss it. The Court of Chancery. It is the theme of much of Dickens' best work, and is the whole motive of Bleak House and the famous Jarndyce and Jarndyce lawsuit. The mixture of humour and pathos in the treatment of this subject tempts me to digress a little before explaining as best I may the actual state of the law at the time we are introduced to those who are interested in the vast machinery of the court of chancery as the great jarndyce case drags its slow length along from the lord chancellor down to the starving law-writer we see suitors of every description like the man from shropshire and miss flight we seem to smell the musty law-papers as we read the book i confess to feeling almost maddened by the callous slowness with which mr voles the solicitor who maintained an aged father in the vale of taunton played with the hopes and fears of the anxious suitors 
the eminent respectability of such a practitioner adds dickens was always quoted whenever a commission sat to see whether the business of the court could be expedited we laugh but the tears are not far off at the humour of such people as miss flight mr gruppy conversation kenge yet we feel the pathos of all the woe and disappointment caused by the delays of the monstrous machine of the law to dickens the court of chancery represented two things first it stood for oppression it appeared to him a vast system backed by vested interests which sucked unhappy suitors into litigation against their will fettered and crippled them for the rest of their lives and in many cases ultimately consigned them to the despairing misery of a debtor's prison it drove men and women to madness like poor miss flight or made them misanthropes like mr grindley the man from shropshire it made wretched half-ruined people hang about the courts day after day expecting a judgment it caused houses to fall into ruin and whole streets to become deserted because chancery could not decide to whom they belonged listen to the man from shropshire's description of his own case mr jarndyce consider my case as there is a heaven above us this is my case i am one of two brothers my father a farmer made a will and left his farm and stock to my mother for her life after my mother's death all was to come to me except the legacy of three hundred pounds that i was to pay to my brother the brother claimed the legacy grindley said he had some of it and the brother filed a bill in chancery seventeen persons were made defendants in this simple suit two years elapsed and the master of chancery then found there ought to be another defendant and all the proceedings were quashed the costs at that time before the suit had begun were three times the legacy the brother tried to back out but the court would not let him the whole property was sucked away in a suit which common sense could have decided in a day the demoralizing effect of a court so dilatory and so capricious also revealed itself in its influence on character men and women spent their lives in waiting for a decision and found it impossible to settle to any regular calling the court was in fact like a gigantic lottery a favourable decision might make a man wealthy in a day and with such a prospect it was impossible for him to settle down to the drudgery of a profession in addition to this so conflicting were the interests involved that families were divided hopelessly how pathetically does dickens sketch the character of richard carstone he tries physic the army the law and cannot stick to any as his vocation he feels that at any time the jarndyce case may make him a rich man his only hope is to drive it to a conclusion under the influence of mr voles he learns to distrust his old friend mr john jarndyce and even in part his betrothed the sweet ada because they too have interests in the suit when the case comes to an end by all the money being absorbed in costs he dies despairing yet penitent let us now see how the bare facts stripped of romance appear the court of chancery represents equity which is ideally law in its highest aspect regarded not as interpreted by statute or custom but from the standpoint of justice tempered by mercy as such equity came to be regarded as more important than common law and the chancery overshadowed the other courts 
the chancellor rose constantly in importance and as the chief of the king's chaplains and his adviser in the exercise of the prerogative of mercy he became the keeper of the king's conscience as time went on equity like common law was based on precedent and its original purpose fell into the background the business of the chancery was continually on the increase and it finally became utterly unmanageable protracted lawsuits were certainly no new thing and in the fifteenth century there are i believe examples of interminable litigation at an early date the law's delay had passed into a proverb and nothing was done to remedy the growing evil the lord chancellor and the master of the rolls were the only available judges and as population increased and conditions of life became more complicated the grievances of the wretched suitors in chancery became intolerable as you know in the prize ring when a boxer had got his adversary into a hopeless position and could treat him as he liked the beaten man was said to be in chancery it is generally supposed that the chancellor in bleak house is the famous lord eldon whose tenure of the exalted office is almost the longest on record he was a man of many virtues and singularly kind-hearted the description of his reception of the wards in chancery in the book before us does ample justice to this trait and as a lawyer he ranks among the very foremost exponents of the law of england but he knew and valued the merits of the legal system and despite the fact of many cases of individual hardship these were many and he was so anxious to give judgments in exact accordance with the law that he had great difficulty in making up his mind as a matter of fact a judgment by lord eldon is even now accepted in your country as well as mine but his conscientious thoroughness was a great drawback in delaying the congested business of the court i will now give some formal examples of the condition of the chancery taken from spencer walpole's history of england from a d eighteen sixteen but first let us quote dean swift's description of the law's delay a century earlier it is of course a caricature but his satire is so pungent and his wit so satirical that i cannot resist the temptation of using his famous book swift makes gulliver explain the law of england to the huinims the horses who rule over the human yahoos it is a maxim among these lawyers that whatever hath been done may be legally done again and therefore they take special care to record all the decisions made against common justice and the general reason of mankind these under the name of precedents they produce as authorities to justify the most iniquitous opinions and the judges never fail of directing accordingly in pleading they studiously avoid entering into the merits of a case but are loud violent and tedious in dwelling on all circumstances which are not to the purpose for instance in the case already mentioned a claim to a cow they never desire to know what claim or title my adversary hath to my cow but whether the said cow were red or black her horns long or short whether the field i graze her in be round or square whether she was milked at home or abroad what diseases she is subject to and the like after which they consult precedents adjourn the cause from time to time and in ten twenty or thirty years come to an issue here is a typical undefended chancery suit 
a will which came into force in eighteen nineteen contained bequests to charities these legacies were contrary to the mortmain laws and were consequently void the heir at law filed a bill in chancery to make them so during eighteen twenty the trustees of the charities put in their answers in eighteen twenty one the case was referred to the master of chancery to find out who was the heir at law in eighteen twenty three he was ready with an answer and the court directed him to give an account of the property he did so in eighteen twenty four in eighteen twenty five the case was set down for further directions in eighteen twenty six the master was told to ascertain the children of the testator's half-nephews this took till eighteen twenty eight when the case was reported to the house of commons the master was then still pursuing his inquiries a defended case was naturally slower the case was referred to the master in chancery he reported exceptions were then taken to his report and so on in about ten years something probably occurred to make it necessary to begin again the masters were paid by fees and were interested in making a case last their incomes often amounted to as much as three thousand pounds fifteen thousand dollars to four thousand pounds twenty thousand dollars a year the amount of law copying was prodigious in one case it came to ten thousand four hundred and ninety seven folios for which a charge of six shillings and eight pence a dollar sixty for each folio was made you recollect the poor captain who sunk to the position of a law copying clerk be sure he was not paid at this rate such then were a few of the abuses of one branch of the legal system which dickens exposed they have in the main been disposed of since eighteen seventy three we cannot however leave the subject without a few words on his inexhaustible fertility in drawing the characters of lawyers the profession is represented throughout we see mr justice stareleigh trying mr pickwick and waking up at intervals who can forget the cross-examination of sam weller is it a good place sam is asked yes sir little to do and plenty to get said sergeant buzfuz jocularly plenty to get as the soldier said when they gave him six dozen replied sam you mustn't tell us what the soldier or anybody else said remarked the judge waking up suddenly it is not evidence immortal too are the counsel in that famous case the eloquent buzfuz and the abstracted stubbin nor can we forget the unlucky novice mr funky who ruined the case for mr pickwick by the way he cross-examined mr winkle no profession has risen more in dignity and respectability in england in recent years than that of the solicitor or attorney in scott and in almost all earlier novelists the man who prepared the work for counsel and was engaged in the humbler practice of the courts is nearly always represented as a rogue how often do we hear him described as a miserable pettifogger and charged with sharp practice it is the same with dickens even mr perker in pickwick who is thoroughly honest cannot withhold his admiration of dodson and fogg's acuteness dodson and fogg have taken mrs bardell in execution for her cost sir said job no exclaimed perker putting his hands in his pockets and reclining against the sideboard yes said job it seems they got a cognovit out of her for the amount of em directly after the trial 
by jove said perker taking both hands out of his pockets and striking the knuckles of his right against the palm of his left emphatically those are the cleverest scamps i ever had anything to do with the sharpest practitioners i ever knew sir observed loton sharp echoed perker there's no knowing where to have them very true sir there is not replied loton and then both master and man pondered for a few seconds with animated countenances as if they were reflecting upon one of the most beautiful and ingenious discoveries the intellect of man had ever made etc End of section seventeen